So anybody want to guess what happens when you're scheduled to preach on the subject of the Sabbath? You get a really busy week. <laughs> you might not even believe how busy the week can get. As you go through it, it gets busier and busier and busier. You see, I had a busy week already, and I knew I had a busy week coming back from time away, and uh, we had a wonderful time last weekend, and, and you guys did a wonderful, had a wonderful worship service without us, which is always good to see that you're not the linchpin by any means. The Holy Spirit is the linchpin, and He was here last week. And so I knew I was coming back. I knew I had a lot to catch up on. I knew I had a lot going on. I had about six-hour block of district meetings right in the middle of the week that I knew was going to blow up that day. We had neighborhood soccer on Saturday, 24 hours of prayer and a night of worship, so I knew my Saturday was pretty well spoken for. And I had committed to speak on Wednesday uh, at our Bible study fellowship that meets in here. So that had kind of disrupted one of my main sermon prep blocks, which is Wednesday morning. Monday's sermon prep block got consumed by a funeral, which I love funerals. Funerals are a very unique opportunity to minister to a family, to welcome people into our church that maybe haven't been in a church in a long time. And so I was not quite sure how everything was going to work out. And then Wednesday morning, as I'm here, we start getting calls about, is so-and-so a member of your congregation? Well, she's not in the, in the system, the, you know, but that doesn't mean she isn't. And, and as we start to piece things together, a, a longtime member of Linwood had passed away, and there was going to be another funeral on Monday. And uh, so that's two funerals inside of a week, which has never happened in 15 years of ministry. And I don't think I've ever been scheduled to preach on the Sabbath so specifically, even though this had been on the books for weeks, months, uh, it just all kind of came together. And I never like to do short shrift on a funeral. I always want to uh, make sure that, that that moment gets the attention that it deserves. I don't want to cut corners. And uh, yet I've never had two so close together. And as luck would have it, here we are. And so we are in week six of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. If you're reading through the book, going through a group together, you know that week six, chapter six in the book is titled The Rhythms of the Daily Office and the Sabbath. Now, I'm not titling our sermon today with that title, even though I have done that throughout because it's a really long kind of bulky title. And when I picked up the day-by-day uh, -day, uh, journal or daily office, devotional, uh, I noticed right there on the first page an invitation to loving union. And that's really what the rhythms of daily Sabbath or daily office and Sabbath are all about. It's an invitation that God gives to each and every one of us to live our lives in loving union with Him. A union that marks or becomes the hallmark of each day and each week rather than the highlight of the week on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or maybe both. And so before we dive into today's topic, the invitation to loving union and the rhythms of the daily office and the Sabbath, I just want to push the pause button because the last three weeks have been kind of intense, haven't they? If you've been here all of those three weeks, you know we've talked about going back to go forward and, and digging into our family of origin and, and some things that maybe went way back for some of us. Then we talked about the idea of the journey through the wall and the spiritual walls of life. And then last week, Pastor Sandy did a wonderful job talking about how we can actually enlarge our souls through grief and loss rather than seeing our souls shrink and shrivel 
through grief and loss. But those are three pretty big subjects and three pretty big topics. And it occurs to me that we're doing this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality content in an eight-week sermon series, but this might not be an eight-week project in your life. That weeks three, four, and five in particular might require some additional time. So even though we're moving on, in this sermon series, I might encourage you, if you feel that the Spirit would lead you to do so, to sort of push the pause button and to be willing to dig deeper in one or two or three of these middle weeks, because the first couple of weeks were mostly foundational, talking about the problem of emotional, emotionally unhealthy spirituality and how God desires us to be emotionally mature. Then weeks three, four, and five are really the heart or the, the climax of this sermon series, the real the real meat of it. And these last few weeks are really sort of the new habits that will come out of doing the works of three, four, and five. So I want to encourage you, if you're going through this, don't steamroll through weeks three, four, and five just to stay on schedule. Make sure that that you give those the attention that they deserve, especially if you're working through it in a group. Know that the group might be moving forward, but you personally might need a little more time. So today we're talking about these two things that are referred to as the daily office and the Sabbath. Now, I would venture a guess that one of those terms is pretty familiar to you. It occurs in Scripture a number of different times. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's number four. This, this term Sabbath, we at least have some concept of, but how many of you had heard of the term the daily office before we got into this? And we're real familiar with the idea of a daily office. Not very many. It was a new term to me when I dove into emotionally healthy spirituality, and I was like, why doesn't he just call it devotional? Well, because it's different than a devotional. There's some overlap with sort of the idea of a devotional or devotions or devotional time, but the daily office is less focused on getting from God, where often when I hear as a pastor the terminology of devotions or devotionals, it's just like, I'm going to fill myself up. I'm, gonna, I'm going to, you know, get what I need for the day. Maybe you've seen the mugs that say, I just need a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus, and I'll make it through this day. It's that idea that often corresponds with devotions or devotionals. And the daily office or the idea of, of the daily office is really more focused on being with God throughout the day, on setting aside and incorporating into your life on a regular basis throughout each day this time with God and returning to God. And that's the daily office. Sabbath then becomes the weekly rhythm of intentional rest and worship that one day out of seven is set aside for spiritual purposes, for for reconnecting with God at a very deep level. God rested on the seventh day, we read about in the creation narrative, and so should we. And he even commands us to do so. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, and you really pay attention to the way that they're structured, you'll see something interesting that almost as many words are devoted to to command number four the keeping of the Sabbath, and it's fleshed out on why we do this, and it's right in there next to don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. This is a big deal to God, and he spends a lot of time fleshing it out so that people will understand it. And so we should really pay attention because both of these, both the daily office or the daily rhythms and the weekly rhythm of Sabbath are about delighting in God deeply and consistently. 
throughout the day, throughout the week, building these rhythms into your life. And I love this quote from John Orberg that came to mind. He says, the main measure of your devotion to God is not your devotional life. It's simply your life. (laughs) That you can have a great devotional life, and then once you close the Bible and go about your day, or go about your week, that the rest of your life doesn't match up with your devotional life. And I lived in this inconsistency for some time as an early Christian. I would, I would have a really good devotional, and then I would close the devotional book or close the Bible or leave the Bible study that I was a part of, and I would basically live like the rest of the world, live like my unredeemed self for the most part for the rest of the day or the rest of the week, and then start the cycle over again. And that eventually that inconsistency becomes really hard to reconcile, that incongruity, the lack of integrity. It creates anxiety or it creates all kinds of different things. And the point of this quote is that your life is the main measure of your devotion to God and how consistent is your devotion to God throughout your life. So we're going to look at Psalm 37 today. This is one of the passages that came immediately to mind on this subject matter, particularly the notion that both of these are geared around delighting in God. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 37. That'll be our main passage today. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you, and you can open one of those up to page 874. We're also going to have it on the screen behind me so you can follow along right there. Now, this is a psalm that's written by David, and it's characterized as a wisdom psalm. There's not a whole lot of wisdom psalms, but there are a handful of psalms that when you read them, you might look up at the corner of your page to make sure we're not in Proverbs, because this sounds so much more like Proverbs than it does like the most of the psalms, whether they're praise psalms or lament psalms or confessional psalms, they, they have a certain language, a certain characteristic to them, and this one seems to resonate more with Proverbs than it does with psalms. But it's written by King David, and the main sort of premise of this psalm is, is what to do with this seeming inconsistency that, that wicked people seem to prosper, that they seem to be doing better than those who are following God and are devoted to God. So what's going on here? And so the first couple of verses uh, establish that. Don't fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong, for like the grass, they'll soon wither, and the green plants, they'll soon die away. I really want to focus on verses 3 through 6. Because verses 3 through 6, let's read this together, and then let's kind of walk through this together. Here David says, trust in the Lord. Don't worry about that. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And so there's a contrast. The first couple of verses talk about don't fret because of evildoers. Don't worry about evildoers. Don't be anxious because it seems like they're getting ahead. And then the real heart of this passage, verses 3 through 6, twice he says, trust in the Lord. Don't worry about that. Don't fret about that. Instead, trust. Trust in the Lord. Not in ourselves. Not in what appearances look like. Trust in God and do good. Good, don't do evil. 
Don't jump in with those who are doing evil and seem like they're getting ahead as they cut corners, as they cheat on their taxes, or as they disobey commands in Scripture. Trust in God. Don't fall in with them. Don't take on their ways. Choose to do things God's way. Trust that His way really is better. And the second half of verse 3 says, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. And I, I always put in parentheses in my mind anyway, dwell in the promised land. Dwell in the land of God's provision. Dwell in the land that He has set aside for you. And be content with what He has given you instead of maybe envying what those who seem to be getting ahead have. Just dwell in that promised land of God's provision. And enjoy safe pasture, enjoy the safety that comes with obedience, that comes with doing things God's way, that comes with having right standing with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you will have eternity with him. And that even if you seem to be disadvantaged in this life, you will be so overwhelmingly advantaged in the life to come that you can enjoy safe pasture and you can say, I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. Now, depending on what translation you're looking at, that second phrase might say something along the lines of befriend faithfulness instead of enjoy safe pastures or cultivate faithfulness, which is my favorite translation of this. I think that's the New King James Version. And I love that idea of dwelling in God's provision, dwelling in the promised land where God is with us, and cultivating faithfulness. Because we have some farmers in our congregation, and we're surrounded by farmers, whether there are any in this congregation or not, and they understand what cultivation is. Cultivation is creating an environment to the best of your ability where something will grow. And so if you're trying to cultivate a corn crop, then you create an environment and you put things in the soil and you, you spray and you do the things that you can do to create an environment to the best of your ability where corn will grow. And so when we talk about cultivating faithfulness, we're talking about creating an environment in our lives where our faithfulness can grow and where we can experience all that God has for us. Now, he continues in verse 4, and he says, delight yourself in the Lord. And I think it's saying delight yourself in the, in the Lord rather than the things of this world, rather than the things that you see evildoers having that you don't have and you miss, and you think you're missing out. But if we delight ourselves in the Lord, that's the thing that we have, and that's the thing that ultimately satisfies us more than any of these other things of the world. So we delight ourselves in the Lord. You know the song. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face, and the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Too often, we just need to stop looking at that, whatever that is, and get our eyes back on Jesus. And then we stop worrying about that, and we trust in the Lord. And we delight in God first and foremost as well. You delight yourself in the Lord more than your possessions, more than your experiences, more than the accolades that come, more even, and this might be hard for some of you, but more even than your grandkids, right? You delight in the Lord more than all of these other things. And He's first and He's foremost in your life, and He will never disappoint you. You can never lose him. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And we're told that he will give you the desires of your heart. 
This is a promise. This is the first promise that we see in this. It comes at the end of these exhortations in verses 3 and 4. It says, He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, there's two different interpretations on here. The standard sort of way that the words are formed would be that you just delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you whatever you want. Right? If you just delight yourself in the Lord, and this is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that you can hear on television sometimes. If you just delight yourself in the Lord, if you just, if you just tithe, if you just sow some extra money into this ministry, He'll give you everything you want. He'll give you a boat and a truck to pull it with. He'll give you wonderful vacations, all the money you can imagine, because you've delighted yourself in the Lord. And if you don't have those things, it's just because you haven't delighted yourself in the Lord enough. There's also a different interpretation, and this is the interpretation that I hold. And that is that when you delight yourself in the Lord so fully, so completely in the Lord, and He truly is first in your life, He'll actually give you the desires. Not the things you desire, but He'll put desires into your heart that are godly desires, that resonate with the kingdom of God in this world. And when you desire those, and and then He gives you those, then you're even more delighted, and you start this delight loop where you're delighting yourself more and more in God. He's giving you these desires, and he's fulfilling those desires because you're delighting in him. And that, that sucker just spins, and it's a really good thing. And it's kind of the difference between getting what you want and wanting what you've got because you've got as much of God as you want. He is always available to us through his word, through prayer, through worship, through fellowship, through serving other people. And sometimes we just stop short. And we stick our thumbs in our Bible and we read some random passage out of Jeremiah and we say, it doesn't make any sense. I tried to read my Bible and God wasn't there. And so we move on. And He is there. And if we'll delight ourselves in Him regularly in a systematic way, then we may not necessarily get what we wanted before we started that, but we'll want what we've got. And we'll be content in ways that we maybe never even thought were possible. Now moving on to verse 5. He says, commit your way to the Lord. And I think he's talking about your way of life, your way of being, your life, as the John Ortberg quote would say. Not just the 15 minutes in the morning or an hour on Sunday or some combination of that, but your whole life. Commit your whole life, your whole way to the Lord. Everything you pursue, everything you value, everything that really matters to you, commit that to the Lord. Then it says it again, trust in Him. It echoes verse 3. Trust in Him. Really rely upon Him. Really believe in Him. Really cling to Him and Him alone. And even when it looks like it's going the wrong way, you trust in Him. And you come back to trusting in Him. And you come back to saying, no, I commit my way to the Lord. I believe His way really is better. And then there's another promise. He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And I love that language, this idea of our righteousness shining. That, that means that others will see it as well. That it will illuminate our path as our righteousness shines. Not only will we see the path before us better because we have commit our way to the Lord. There's a literal interpretation of this, but there's also the figurative interpretation of this. But others will see that righteousness as well. And they'll be drawn to God through it. And the justice of our cause will be evident to all as well versus the evildoers that we kind of have this whole context with, right? That the justice of our cause will be evident 
to everyone. And I believe the essence of this passage, the essence of these first six verses, and if you continue through the remainder of this psalm, you'll see it as well, is don't worry about the evildoers. Trust God. Trust God. Delight in Him. Enter into loving union with God. Step into that. Accept the invitation. Open the gift. Receive the gift. Cherish the gift. Because truly delighting in the Lord doesn't happen by accident. Truly delighting in the Lord doesn't happen by accident. That's our bottom line today. That the type of delighting in the Lord that David is talking about here, that Scripture is encouraging us to here, doesn't happen by accident. You don't drift into delighting in the Lord more than anything else. We tend to drift away from that if we're not intentional, and we drift into delighting in the things of this world and the appetites of this world. And many of those are very good things. They just can't be the first thing. God has to be the first thing. Delighting in the Lord has to be the first thing for us. Because when we delight in Him on purpose and intentionally, then we can cultivate faithfulness. We can enjoy safe pasture in the promised land. This is the loving union that God invites us to. And it's available to each and every one of us. But it doesn't happen by accident. And I think a very strong case could be made scripturally and certainly in the book here that that, that these, these elements of the daily office and of the Sabbath on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. These things are what sustains that delight in the Lord and sustains that loving union with God. So I want to look at each one of them individually and and look at the central elements of each of them because the the central elements of what is referred to as the daily office, as this idea that throughout the day I'm going to do these things, at minimum twice a day, might be morning and night. It might be morning and midday. It might be midday and night. Why not go ahead and do morning, midday, and night and sprinkle in a couple more throughout the day? There are certain things, though, that will happen each time we return to God, each time we engage in the daily office. And the first of those is that we'll stop. We'll stop what we're doing, and we'll trust God to run the world without us. Now, this is harder for some of us than others, right? If you're real type A and you're on ball and you've got a schedule and you're, on, you're keeping your schedule, then it can be hard to imagine that God can run the world without us. I have suffered from this affliction at times in my own life. Like, I can't stop that, God, because then it will completely fall apart. If it is to be, it's up to me. And if I don't do it, it won't get done. You Maybe you've heard some iteration of this. But the first thing that we do when we engage in the daily office is we stop. We stop what we're doing. And we trust God to run the world without us. And then we center ourselves on God. And so for most of us, this will involve some sort of deep breath and then an exhale. And we just come back to God. And we come back, whatever we've been doing, wherever it has taken us mentally, physically, emotionally, we just return to God and we recenter our lives on Him. And you might just recite a phrase like, be still and know that I am God. And you say that to your soul, be still and know that I am God. I picked up a prayer from John Eldridge, uh, his book, Take Back Your Life, and, and he just says, Lord... I release everything and everyone to you. 
and I invite your peace and your presence into this moment. And so that has become my centering prayer. As I engage in the daily office, I take a deep breath in. Most of us don't do this in a given hour. We don't take a deep breath in, but it can reset all kinds of things in our sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems. It's amazing what happens just with a deep breath. So you take a deep breath in, and then on the exhale, you just say, Lord, I release everything and everyone to you. I invite your peace and your presence into the present moment. And now you're centered, and it's amazing the shift that can take place in your life. And then there's a moment of silence. And depending on how much time you have, the next sort of step or central element of the daily office is silence. Turn it off, whatever it is. Take the earbuds out. Turn the volume of your outer and inner world down and just exist in silence for a moment. It's not that hard, is it? But it can be very foreign in this world that always has a radio on, that always has some noise, that always has something buzzing in our pocket or chirping at us. And so there can be tremendous value on a regular basis throughout the day to quiet our inner and outer world. And then the fourth element of the daily office is Scripture. No surprise here. (laughs) One of our core values is centering our lives on the Word. So as we stop, as we center, as we enjoy some silence, we should also fill that silence with God's Word doesn't have to be a lot. It can be, depending on the time that you have or, or various times throughout the day, it could, could be a lot. It could be a psalm. It could be one verse at a time. It could be your banding together reading plan. It could be something else that you're reading. I would encourage you to focus on the quality of your engagement with the Scripture over the quantity. Don't feel like, i got to read a chapter or i got to read a book or i got to read whatever. Like The quality of your engagement in that scripture will be very valuable. For me, I spread this out throughout the day. In the morning, I have a, a passage. A month at a time, I focus on five to seven, ten verses, whatever it is. I read that in the morning, and I just let that soak into me. Right now, it's Romans 5, 1 through 5. I'm reading that every day in the morning. Maybe then other times, it's my banding together reading throughout the day. There are different times and different ways that we can engage this. Now, in monasteries, in monastic settings, there's the liturgy of the hours. Perhaps you've heard of this. I have visited a silent monastery on three different occasions for spiritual retreats. In fact, day three of my sabbatical, I went through the liturgy of the hours with the monks at the monastery at Gethsemane. And it was powerful. I'd done this before. And it takes some discipline and it takes some intentionality because the first one's at 3.15 in the morning right? Now, I'm an early riser, (laughs) but I'm not a 3.15 in the morning on my own early riser. And so the day before, you have to program your phone to tell you. Now, they don't have to do this because they do this every day, but I have to do this. And you're, you're there. And you begin the day with worship. And then I think they go into study. I go back to bed. I sleep a little bit longer. I get up. There's another one. There are seven of these throughout the day, different times, before meals, after meals, at the end of the day. There's compline. There's all these different ways to connect with God throughout the day. Some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. Two are pretty long. Two are about 20 or so minutes, and three are less than 15 minutes. And I do that one day each time that I go there, and it's a powerful day, and it's a day that just feels like it's saturated with the presence of God. And then I, I leave, and I kind of go back to my world. And I, I realized after this last trip, I, th- I said, I think that's wrong. I think I should stop. I should find a way 
to do this. I don't think I can do it the way that they do it. I can't get up at 3.15 for 45 minutes and then, you know, 5.15 and then a 6.15. But I probably could incorporate something into my day. So for me, I've programmed my phone to remind me seven times a day to say my release prayer, to take a deep breath, to come back to God, to reflect on some scripture. Sometimes I do this for an hour. Sometimes I do this for five minutes on my way to the bathroom and back or something like that. But it's, it's there throughout the day, and it draws me back into the presence of God. And as John Eldridge has commented, I love this story from him. He says, Henry Nowen once asked Mother Teresa for spiritual direction. Now, wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall when that conversation? Henry Nowen is a prolific spiritual writer, and we all know who Mother Teresa is. And we're told that her response was, spend one hour each day in adoration of your Lord and never do anything you know is wrong. Follow this and you'll be fine. And I made that my goal. And some days I spend two hours and some days I spend less. But I made it my goal to increasingly spend at least an hour of the day in adoration of God through reading the Bible, through prayer, through worship, going on a walk and just praying for people and going on a walk and singing worship songs just by myself. These are all ways that I adore my Lord throughout the day. And I try to never do anything that I know is wrong. And it's been good. I highly recommend it. You might be thinking, is it really that simple? And I would say yes. It is. It's not perfect. It's not flawless. I still have my moments. I still get in a snit. Anybody use that language? Get in a snit every now and then. But it's working. And I think it's definitely worth a try in your life. But what would you need to do in order to spend an hour a day adoring your Lord and never do anything you know is wrong? What, what lifestyle changes would that create in your life? Now, you might just need to start with five minutes a day adoring your Lord and then add a minute every week until you get to an hour. I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know what time you have available, but I know there was a time in my life when I said, I don't have an hour a day. But my cell phone told me different because I used the time check uh, feature on there and I found out I was spending an hour and a half to two hours a day on social media platforms. I said, well, I could turn that down and that would free up some time. And so maybe there's something else. Maybe it's cable news. Maybe it's, it's reading other things that are not furthering your delight in the Lord. They might be creating anxiety in your life. You just cut some of those off and you turn up the amount of time that you spend with the Lord. Now, that's the daily office. I also want to share four principles on biblical Sabbath. Because there's a difference between biblical Sabbath and a day off, right? A day off is a really cheap down version of a biblical Sabbath. And so there's four principles of a biblical Sabbath. The first one will sound real familiar. It, it's just that you stop. <laughs> you stop working. You stop producing. This was a foreign concept to the people of Israel when God first told them, you shall take a Sabbath, one out of every seven days. Because for generations in Egypt, they were slaves and they worked from sunup to sundown every single day. They had been reduced to machinery. And God said, no, you're my chosen people now, and you're going to take a day off every seven days. And you're going to worship me, and you're going to reconnect with each other spiritually in worship and in fellowship and the hearing of God's word, and, and you're going to do this on a regular basis. So the word literally means to cease, to stop working. This requires trust. This requires trust that, that the, the farm's still going to continue to grow, that, that stuff's still going to happen, that the, God's going to run the world, not just for my five minutes of my daily office, but for a whole day. 
And yet, week in and week out, he does this for millions of people. It's amazing. And it occurs to me, and this isn't just because my son works there, but like Chick-fil-A has figured something out. And they don't open on Sundays. You might be aware of this. But are you aware that the average Chick-fil-A location brings in four times as much revenue as the average fast food location in America? Year in, year out, Chick-fil-A location brings in four times as much as the average other fast food location. And they're always happy to see you. I have never once walked into a Chick-fil-A and gone, hi, what do you want? Have you? It ain't going to happen. You want to know why? I think one reason why, well, they're trained, yeah. But they get a day off every week. Their life, whether they know it or not, whether they worship Jesus or not, their life has come into a rhythm that God has established and said, it is good to have a day off every week. And I happen to know they get another day off every week as well, just in the way that they're scheduled. So you're getting two days off per week. No wonder they're happy to see you. No wonder it's their pleasure to serve you. And so the first thing that we do with the Sabbath is we stop, then we rest. And this isn't just sleep and, you know, being lazy and I can't get out of bed because it's the Sabbath, i got to rest. But do what replenishes you. Do things that you enjoy. Do things that, that are recreational for you. Do you know what the word recreation has right in the middle of it? Recreation. What's recreational for you? What do you enjoy? For me, I actually enjoy mowing the lawn. It looks like a mess. Don't drive by my house. I haven't done it in a while. It looks like a mess. I mow it. It looks really nice. How many things in your life can you fix in an hour? I love mowing my lawn. It's recreational for me. I can mow my lawn on the Sabbath. There's things I can't do on the Sabbath because they are deplenishing for me. But restful replenishment is good for us. Then we delight in the Lord. We enjoy and we savor God. We savor His creation. We savor our loved ones. We spend time intentionally connecting with them in a deeper way because we have the time and we've set it apart and we've been intentional with it. Now, the fourth one is to contemplate God or to worship God. I chose worship even though the book says contemplate because I think that there's something really powerful about setting aside a lot of time to worship God intentionally with others alone on our Sabbaths. And so those are four principles of biblical Sabbath. And you see, they're fairly broad, just like the daily office. It's not like you have to do it this way or it doesn't count. Don't become legalistic about this. At the time that Jesus was walking around, you see in the Gospels, he dealt with the Sabbath more than just about any other thing because they'd ruined it. They'd made the Sabbath a bunch of rules and regulations, and it was not joyful to anyone. And so Jesus said multiple times, man was not created for the Sabbath. Sabbath was created for man. So back to my really busy week. And on Wednesday morning when it becomes evident that I'm going to be having a funeral on Monday as well, and I just had one on Monday, and I was having a conversation with Pastor Sandy because she was going to shadow me on this one because one of the people is connected to Grief Share, and so, you know, we were going to work on this one together. I remember saying, I was like, my Thursday is so busy and Saturday is so busy, I'm just going to have to have the meeting on Friday. But Friday was my Sabbath this week. It was the only day that could be my Sabbath. And I remember walking away from that, and it was like the Holy Spirit whispered and said, yeah, but you're preaching on Sabbath on Sunday. You can't just blow up your Sabbath on the week that you're preaching on it. What kind of preacher are you? What kind of integrity does that represent? And so I called the family, and I said, I'm sorry, Friday's not available. Could we meet on Thursday or find a time on Saturday? I said, oh, yeah, we'd be happy to meet on Thursday. And the problem was solved, and the solution came before I even recognized 
that I had conceded something that I didn't need to concede. And a couple of years ago, I would have just said, oh, well, I'll catch up on the Sabbath next week. But there's two problems with that mentality, because I lived that mentality for a long time. The first problem is that I developed a strong conviction coming out of my sabbatical, which the root word of sabbatical is Sabbath, that I would honor the Sabbath in my own life, that I would draw a line in the sand and make sure I would do that. And I've only failed on that a couple of times. I wasn't preaching on Sabbath those weeks, apparently. But the second problem with that mentality, that, oh, well, I'll just catch up on my Sabbath next week, is that it doesn't work like that. The command is one day out of every seven. Not two out of every 14 or four out of every 28, but one out of every seven. There's a rhythm here. It's a good rhythm. It's the rhythm God said is good. And it underscores the reality that the Sabbath is a gift from our Heavenly Father And he really does know best. And we either gratefully accept that gift each week and receive a blessing as a result, or we foolishly reject that gift each week or some weeks and do that to our detriment. And so here's what I found. And this became a real reality this week, that if I schedule it, you might think, you got to schedule your Sabbath? Yeah, I do. I've got a picture of my schedule. This is my schedule. This is an average, well, this is a slightly busier than average week. This is the week that I just had. But there's blocks, there's meetings, there's all kinds of things that happen in a given week for me. That is our whole family's calendar because my calendar seems to drive it all. But there's a big blue bar on the next slide. You can see it kind of circled. And it's my Sabbath. And when I made it a decision that I was going to honor the Sabbath, I scheduled my Sabbath every week. And there's a lot of weeks that I reschedule my Sabbath. But when that big 24-hour block is on my calendar, I either have to reschedule it or deschedule it. And descheduling it feels very, very bad to me. I don't want to do it. I've made a commitment. And so I would encourage you, if you want to get serious about Sabbath keeping, to schedule it, to put it on your calendar. Because our bottom line Truly delighting in the Lord, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens intentionally, though. We really can cultivate this. We really can do this, not just on a weekly basis, but throughout the day. What would it look like in your life? And instead of thinking, well, I can't because of this and this and this, think, well, I could if, I could if I just regularly got up or I I took half of my lunch hour, or we chose to end the day the same way every day just by reading some scripture, by sharing our lives together, by praying together. These are all things that are available to us, and they'll be a blessing to us. It doesn't happen by accident, but it does happen on purpose. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good good Father, and that you give us good gifts. And you want us to have them. You want us to have the gift of your presence throughout each day. And it's available. As soon as we'll turn our attention to you, you're there. And that you want us to have a day each week that is restorative to our soul where we reconnect with you, we reconnect with people in our lives that are close to us. We 
We experience recreation. We experience life-giving activities. And we pray that you would help us to open those gifts each day and each week and to experience loving union with you because ultimately these are an invitation to loving union with you. And we want that, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.